welcome back to the second part of this redcast in, we, in which we talked to Jack Duffin about a little bit more about the politics this time. Jack will talk about basically the background to the official and provisional IRA split in the early 1970s, the implications thereof, and we'll talk a little bit about the future of politics in the north of Ireland and indeed in the Republic right now. So, Jack, you are an old official IRA member. Can you tell us when you joined the IRA, why you joined and why you stuck with the officials? Well, I joined the IRA in 1964. In fact, I was still at school. You know, uh, 19 years of age. Uh, and uh, I was always, throughout my, my younger life, I was always uh, very interested in our history, you know, uh, in Irish history. And that came about, actually, my, my mother and father, you know, during the 1956 IRA campaign, you know, I was quite young then, but uh, I could sense that my mother and father were, were trying to shield us, you know, from what we might get involved in if the lid comes off this state, you know, I always got that sense. You know, my father used to, uh, I lived on the Armour Road in the south of the city. My father on Easter Sunday would, would walk away down Sunnyside Street. I asked him, well, where's he going to? Because he didn't tell us where he was going. He was going across the town to the Falls Road to the Republican commemoration, but wouldn't tell us that he was going, you know. I remember my, my mother, walking through uh, Belfast city centre. You know, I always remember this. I, I was pretty young and uh, she says to me, she whispered, you know, Henry Joy McCracken was hung just here. You know, he's hey, Henry Joy McCracken. Why she whispered, you know, it's, this is, I said, Jack, you better explain was, who McCracken was to the listeners. Please. Yes, Henry Joy McCracken uh, was a Presbyterian from a, a well-to-do family who led the United Irishmen in the Battle of Antrim. In the, in the 6th of June in 1798, sorry, the 7th of June in 1798. Uh, he was hanged in Belfast City Centre on the 17th of July of that year. He's an iconic figure among Belfast Republicans, you know, a Presbyterian radical, you know, uh, one of the United Irishmen. But he was a much, much bigger man than that because he, along with Samuel Nielsen, uh, Henry Joy McCracken, uh, actually, uh, they did work very hard to unite Protestant, Catholic, and dissenter, which was, a, you know, the, the whole purpose of the United Irishman. And the that's one of the dreams of the Republican movement to a certain extent, and that uh, yep. takes us on to discussing yep. maybe the civil rights movement at the time, yep. and the attitude of people like uh, Cahal Goulding and others towards the Protestant yep. population. Yeah, but but that's, what, that's what got me interested in Irish history, you know, and, and, and I found myself when I was going to school calling in to, uh, library in the city centre and asking for books about the United Irishmen and everything. I was quite young and I was learning to use a library and reading up and, and all of this. And, and I, I got very fixated on 1798 and then the William Aidmore and then uh, and the personalities and that Patrick Sarsfield's charges and all of that. And, uh, you know, and when I was invited to join the IRA, it was only going to be one answer because uh, I was well aware then of all of the uh, the, the, the abuses, you know, Catholics were denied jobs and houses, you know, 
you had a plural votes voting system. You know, some unionists had up to six votes. It's something I didn't know myself up until very recently. There was two unionists, at least two unionists, of 35 votes. <laughs> at least two of them, you know, that, that we know about. And uh, all this state violence. And, 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 uh, and of course, my uncle Jack was murdered in 1922 just because he was a Catholic, you know. So when I was invited to join the IRA, like, there was only going to be one answer, a young guy, like, and, and all of that. But the IRA themselves were coming on the back of a failed uh, border campaign when uh, they were just run, blowing up uh, customs posts and scurrying back and forward across the border. And these elderly men went to jail, you know, in the, in the 50s, in 1956. 1962 and when they were getting out of jail some of them went back into the movement and tried to rebuild it others didn't but sat on the sidelines you know others just disappeared but there was a change of mood because there were rethink there was a complete rethink of uh and of the strategy and where they were going and um, they were beginning to realize that they weren't seen as being relevant to the people because people wanted to get a job they wanted to get a proper house they wanted uh, they wanted human rights and all of that and really the, the ideals of 1916 were were just a distant memory you know and they weren't really interested in united ireland you know uh, that was seemed like a, like dreamland you know and uh, but something else was happening because in the 19 just like you have a shift to the right today, but there was a big shift to the left in, in, in the 1960s. You know, the Vietnam War, the Americans were being taken on by the Vietnamese, you know, and uh, those were the days of Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, and people were talking about human rights, you know, and, and uh, there was a shift to the left. And the, the IRA itself was sort of self-examining itself, you know, the whole Republican movement. And you had young people like Ronnie Bunting and Joe McCann, you know, were, were in the movement, Costello, people like that. And there was a very definite shift to the left. Now, that didn't, that didn't go down very well with many of the Republican leaders who, although they always gave lip service to James Connolly and the ideals of James Connolly and the revolutionary ideals of Irish unity being, being uh, on a base of, so, of socialism, True socialism, you know, you know a, a, a country where there were no Protestants or Catholics, just people, and they're all the same, you know. Although they would give lip service to that, essentially many of them were just militant Catholics. Jack, before but, we move on this one here, can you tell us a wee bit about uh, the Civil Rights Association in the 60s? Yeah. Uh, I, I remember as a kid seeing big signs up in demonstrating yeah. saying, you one see, man, one resonance you know we had we had the civil rights movement because uh the civil rights movement was actually a baby of the republicans it was driven it was the invention of republicans although there's lots of other people in it you know there was nationalists there was even some unionists you know but it, it was a republican project because the 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 outcome of all of the self-analysis within the republican movement was that they should shift very definitely towards a political strategy, you know. Now, that, that didn't mean uh, not having a military strategy, 
But as Joe McCann himself put it, he says, look, I'm not a politician and I'm not a gunman. I'm both. And I'm an armed politician. You know, I'm a revolutionary. It's an armed politician. You know, we'll, we'll have to fight the Brits, you know, you know, but we're, but we're fighting a political war, you know. That's, and uh, so this shift, of course, was endorsed by people like Golding, you know, and uh, the leaders in Dublin, you know, and uh, Billy McMillan up here in the north, you know. But you also had something else happening because you had, uh, you had political clergy like Ian Paisley were stirring up hatred and they were doing it. They were absolutely good at it as well. And they were stirring up the, the ancient fears of the Protestant working class and telling them, you know, that really there was a plot in Rome to destroy the Protestant religion here in Ireland and all of that. But it, there, was also a, there was also a lot of communication with communists and the communists in Ireland as well. There was lots of debates and discussions, you know, and uh, then the civil rights came, the idea of the civil rights movement came out of all of that because they were all influenced by what was happening in America as well. So in 1968, we all met in the International Hotel just, just at the back of Belfast City Hall, you know, and uh, I remember that night it was packed, you know, by uh, you had socialists, you had communists, you had young socialists, you had Republicans, you had Labour, some unionists, you know, but very much, most people were very much to the left, you know, uh, I would say, you know, but the project wasn't a left-wing project. You see, look, what we have to do is we have to do something that nothing's never happened in Ireland before. We'll have to do something which isn't going to split. You know, we've all got different objectives, international objectives, international socialists, communists, Republicans, United Irelanders. But we all have to unite on one common theme, and that is the, the, the human rights abuses here in the North. So we'll draw up a list of, of demands. We demanded an end to, uh, an end to discrimination and employment. We demanded an end to internment without trial and an end to the Special Powers Act. We demanded one man, one vote and uh, an end to the uh, be special and all of that. And we took to the streets. We, we, we sort of copied the, the, the Americans, you know, and uh, we took to the streets. But uh, I think we, we underestimated the, the response we were going to get. I remember one Gives a Trotskyist, and he says to me, "Listen, you're walking down, up and down the streets, demanding one man, one vote, demanding for employment, for housing allocation. So you're making demands that can't be met." What do you mean? The unionists can't concede to those demands because this state is is founded. Those, those human rights abuses are the bedrock upon which this state is itself founded upon. So if they're going to concede that, then what's the point of having protection in the first place? Yeah, it's interesting to see the Northern Irish situation in the context of 1960s revolutionary mentality uh, and also the decline of the British Empire. You know, I've read uh, about the developments in the Republican movement uh, that he's describing. And one of the things that's quite striking is the way that the inspiration for those in the Republican movement who wanted to move uh, the movement uh, to a more Marxist-oriented, more left-wing perspective, that 
the real impetus for that came from thing, events like the Cuban Revolution. So when the Cuban Revolution happened, uh, here you had a small island, tick, uh, next to a massive imperialist superpower next door to it, tick, uh, which was able to, uh, through guerrilla warfare, lead the overthrow of a, uh, a corrupt uh, ruling class that was in hock to foreign imperialists. Now, I think, you know, the inspiration of Guevara, the inspiration of Castro was really important in terms of, uh, from what I've read, in terms of shifting the momentum within the Republican movement away from this, what Jack termed militant Catholicism, uh, towards a Republican socialist uh, perspective. So it's not just the events that were going on in the British uh, Empire that uh, are relevant. It's the events that are going on as well in Vietnam, as Jack has said, in Korea, in Cuba, in Latin America. Um, these were all informing the sense of what was possible uh, in the 1960s, uh, coming out of that period of stasis uh, following uh, the Second World War. The international contact is very interesting. The way you put it there is very interesting too. Uh, and it was all part of the decline of the British Empire. But I think the big difference, and we sometimes neglect this, is that in the north of Ireland, we had a, a, a population of settlers. You had the Protestant community who overwhelmingly did not accept uh, Irish nationalism. So, Jack, if you can get us back to talking about that community, what happened in August 1969, uh, the various pogroms that took place then, and what happened after the British Army moved in as a result? Well, you know, the response to the civil rights campaign on the streets, you know, was very much contrived. You know, the, the media were demonizing the civil rights movement and the unionists were panicking, you know, they were they were saying, you know, that uh, this was all a plot, you know, uh, it was really, uh, it was the IRA, it was a cover for the IRA, which it certainly wasn't, you know. Uh, of course, you had two civil rights campaigns, you had the People's Democracy, the PD, which they were much more, they were definitely much more to the left than, than the civil rights movement itself, you know, but uh, really, but you can't, I don't think you can't uh, underscore uh, really. You see the power of the Christian clergy, and you know we had uh, one particular clergyman in Paisley. He was a master at at stirring up. You know, even the Unionists today will admit that he was one of the biggest instigators of sectarian trouble. You know, uh, uh, and he was so good at it. You know, uh, he was a master orator as well. I would say that Paisley was really a political sociopath. You know, uh, one of his favorite, one of his favorite things was, you know, uh, if he was having a debate with you, the first thing he would do, he would call you a liar. That man's a liar, you know. But he would say it with such conviction that, you know, nobody would suspect that he was a liar himself, you know. <laughs> And he, he told lies, you know, he told, he told people that there was uh, the Catholic Church was, was making guns for the IRA and all this. And ambulances going up the Falls Road had IRA weapons in them and, and things like that. But he managed to, uh, 
is, is the whole basis of his power was the fear that he, he put into the Protestant working class. You know, you know, you're under threat here. This is this is not a civil rights campaign. You know, this is a campaign to end the Protestant religion here in Ireland. And the the, the Antichrist is behind it. The Pope himself is behind it. All you know, but that was very powerful. And then you had the emergence of, of, of the Unionist murder gang, the re-emergence of the UVF, and they were murdering Catholics at random, you know, and, and planting bombs as well. And then, uh, you know, when Bombay Street was burned, it culminated really in these attacks uh, on Bombay Street and, and, and in the north of the city as well. You know, and that, that took a lot of people by surprise, you know, that even the IRA weren't expecting it, you know. And, uh, I, mean, I remember as a kid, uh, the day, a day after my birthday, August 15th, 1969, there were pogroms all over the place in Belfast and families pulled out of the homes, the houses burned down. The day after that, the army came across. And I remember seeing banners that sort of gable wall slogan saying, IRA equals I ran away. Many people say that's whenever the old IRA ended, the provisionals came into the place, and the provisionals tended to be that more, as you would say, militant Catholic nationalist type rather than the socialist type. And the split uh, arose thereafter. Would you agree with that narrative? What happened was that the leaders of the IRA in, in the in Belfast, Mike Millen, people like that, they, they didn't want to be uh, derailed by, uh, by these events, by, by sectarianism. And most of all, they didn't want a sectarian war. They didn't want working class people burning each other's houses. You know, that, that's what we could see here, that there, there was a master plan, you know, uh, trying, to get a civil, trying to get a sectarian war. Uh, in Belfast, and many of us believe you know, that uh, the British government themselves may, may have been behind the burnings of, of the houses in Bombay Street and those attacks because, uh, you know, they, they didn't have any answer to the, the civil rights movement because after the Vietnam War ended, you know, all of a sudden Ireland dominated the world news. You know, the most democratic country in the whole world, uh, Britain, you know, they, they, they always say, you know, they, they invented democracy and freedom, you know. But here, just 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 a few a few miles away, you know, they were carrying out all these human rights abuses. And the, the British Army murdered civil rights marchers, you know. And this this was very bad publicity, you know, uh, all over the world, you know. They needed the IRA to come back, but the IRA were elderly men in those days, you know. And uh, you know, at the time of the civil rights movement, there wasn't very many people in the IRA, you know, and the mostly were elderly men, apart from me, Joe McCann and Bunting and, and people like that. You know? And uh, But then when Bombay Street was burned and we had all of these attacks by the police and the special branch and these, these mobs, young people were queuing up to join the IRA who wouldn't have bought a paper from us a week earlier. You know, they were queuing up to join the IRA. The IRA grew overnight and then split into two. You know, uh, that, that split came in, you know, and... Uh, we had the provisionals on, on the officials, you know. Would you say the split was basically about uh, military uh, strategy, or was it more about politics, or maybe a wee bit of both? It was a bit of both, but mostly people were angry, you know. They were angry with the IRA, you know. They bought a, a Republican paper, most of them, from us, you know, just young people going about their business and want to, want to go out with their girlfriends, watch football the weekend, have a pint, you know. 
they weren't really interested in Native Ireland. They came when their houses were burned. It was, it was a different matter. And then, of course, the internment came and they were dragged out of their houses. They were thrown into jail because they were living in the same street as a Republican, you know. And uh, they became Republican eggs, they became radical eggs in the jails, and you can understand all of that, you know. But, uh, but they just wanted one thing, you know, the, the strategy seemed to be, from the British point of view, let's get a war going, you know, get, get the IRA back, because then we can shift the, the focus of world opinion can be shifted away from the human rights abuses, you know, to just, it's a terrorist campaign, you know, and uh, they succeeded in doing that, you know, I would say very much, but, uh, but the, the IRA, the people, the people weren't really, uh, they weren't focused in, in the, the strategy of a socialist republican. They just wanted protection, you know, they wanted to be safe, you know, and uh, that's that's why it became, the whole community became militarized there, you know, and uh, it was it was very much, you know, what do you, for, what do, forget about uniting Protestant and Catholic, what are you going to do, are you going to, are you going to fight, are you, going to, are you going to let them do this, are you going to defend us or what, you know, it was mostly defense, I'd say. Getting back to what Alex was talking about earlier with that uh, Unquiet Grave documentary, which many people have been talking about of late, is it your view that the loyalist terrorists or the loyalist murder gangs, whatever you choose to call them, were always working with the British? Oh yes, uh, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think there was ever a stone thrown by the loyalists or a shot fired that wasn't directed by British agents. I'm going to tell you this. During, when the, uh, when the trouble really got out, got out onto the streets, you know, although there was considerable ideological differences between the provisionals and, and the officials, nevertheless, they knew they were, they were both at war with the British, with the state police, and, and the murder gangs that they were directing, you know, but uh, there was a, an incident were by the official IRA after the UVF man at the height of the sectarian murders. And what they make McMillan was a very astute astute leader, you know. And what he did was Jack, sorry, can I just confirm Billy McMillan at the time was head of the Belfast Brigade, yeah? That's right, yeah. That's right. But what he did was he arranged to have a meeting with the UVF leadership. And he sent a representative. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you his name obviously, but sent a representative over to meet the UVF representative and the two men discussed it. And the UVF man was told, Listen, we've we've actually captured two of you, we've captured two of your men. We'll have them, you know, as prisoners. And if there's anybody if there's any more sectarian murders of any innocent people, they're gonna get shot, we're gonna kill them. So, but he, so they talked it over, and there's an agreement was reached that they would have a strategy where they both agree not to kill any innocent people for any no, no more sectarian murders, you know, not killing anybody because he's a Catholic or anything like that. But the UVF man told Armand says, "But listen, you see, if you want, if you want to make an, such an agreement, you're talking to the wrong people. You need to talk to the British government." Yeah. Well, Alex, any comments or questions on that? 
Well, um, no doubt there's going to be um, information coming out many years hence when we're probably all underground, um, which will show that what Jack is saying is is true. And some of it, some of it is already in the public uh, in, in the public sphere and known already. Uh, I'm quite interested in um, what you're just talking about there, Jack. The attempts to broker uh, some form of agreement between uh, the loyalist gangs, paramilitaries, whatever you call them, and uh, the Republicans. Uh, so on the loyalist side, uh, you obviously had figures who at least claimed uh, to represent a more socially progressive trend within uh within the loyalist community. Uh, so people like um, Gusty Spence was one of the names that used to be bandied around. And certainly nowadays you see in um, Northern Irish politics, uh, the, there was an attempt uh, led by Irving uh, to found this progressive, uh, so-called progressive unionist, uh, party and I, and I believe you know they still have some uh, a small number of councillors uh, on in East Belfast. Would you what 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 would your view be of uh, this so-called progressive tendency or trend, uh, however you would describe it, uh, within the unionist community of uh, of the North of Ireland? Well, you know. Uh you have to look at history, you know, historically, uh, the Republican, the Republic, whole Republican project is not a Catholic project, you know. But if it was a religious project, it would be a Protestant project, you know. If you go back to the United Irishmen in 1798 with Fenians, and the leader of the Fenians in Belfast, you know, was McCulloch, who was a shank of the road Protestant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've told this story to Orange Men and they scratch their heads. I said, you know, uh, Catholics had trouble getting into the Fenians because the leader of the Fenians in Belfast was, was a Protestant and he didn't like to recruit Catholics. And why was that? Not because he was sectarian, because the Fenians were not sectarian, but because he regarded Catholics to be a security risk. And why were they a security risk? Because they tell their secrets to priests. Yeah. yeah. So, but uh, but there's there's always a history of of, of the Republicans republicanism, latent republicanism within the unionist community. You know, on the nineteen forties there was an IRA unit on the Shankill Road. Yeah. In the nineteen forties, an IRA unit. There was always a, a latent, uh, very very left socialist tradition there as well. Uh, you know, and it's important. It's important to say as well, isn't it, that. Um, not just a Republican tradition in the Shankill in connection with Irish Republicanism, but there were volunteers from the Shankill who fought with the international brigades in Spain to defend the Spanish Republic uh, against, against fascism, uh, to defend democracy and Republicanism against fascism. And I think I'm right in saying there's a plaque to some of those volunteers in the Shankill Road Library um to commemorate the uh, the international some of the international brigade volunteers uh, from east belfast yeah yes but 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 having said that there's, there certainly was you know 
having said that, you know, uh, I think a lot of the lip service to idealism and socialism and um, coming from the loyalist, these loyalist groups uh, can't be taken very seriously. You know, this, I don't like to have to say that, you know. Just a year ago, I was in Dublin at a, at a, it's a meeting, actually a meeting of trade unionists and I was invited to it. And Irvine's, Irvine's uh, brother was, was at the meeting. I can't remember his first name, but, but he became the leader of that progressive unionist. And when it came to his turn to speech, he started banging on about the Lord Jesus Christ being his saviour and all and about and quoting the Bible. And I interrupted, I said, excuse me, what, what are you banging on about? <laughs> you know, and uh, he was the leader of the progressive unionists. You know, uh, Jack, tell us about uh, your good friend, uh, Joe McCann, who was uh, an official IRA guy shot, I think, in 1972. Now, uh, Joe always seemed to be more prepared than other officials at the time to take the war to the British. Uh, is, that, is that broadly true? And what did the official leadership think of that? Well, Joe McCann was... Uh it's no exaggeration to say that Joe was a legendary Republican. You know, he, he was an absolute legend. You know, and the, that picture often behind you there crouching under that James Connolly flag. You know, that uh, Joe was one of those people. There's a lot of people, you know, with with a lot of guts and not very much in the brain. You know, there's, there's quite a few people, you know, who are very intelligent and they don't have much guts. You know, and, Joe was one of those people who was very, very clever, very widely read, but he didn't know what fear was either. He had that combination of courage and brains, and he was a born leader, you know. And uh, I remember as a young guy, him and I went down to, to spend a weekend in Mellifond Abbey, uh, which was a Cistercian Abbey down in County Meath, which was destroyed by Henry VIII. And then rebuilt again. You know, we spent a weekend, and he asked me to go. And it was a weekend of absolute peace you know, because the, the Cistercian monks weren't allowed to speak. You know, and, but on the way down, he gave me a tour of the Battle of the Boyne and told me where Sarsfield's divisions were, where Hamilton was, where the charges were. And, he, and this was a young guy. You know, and he, he, he was he, he was absolutely brilliant. He knew, he knew that. You know, and uh, but. I, he, he was uh, he was very militant, you know. And what he did, anything that he did, he, he always he, he always did it very well, you know. But uh, he he was a leader, you know, and he was very much uh, he was very much wanted by the British government, you know. And I remember the night that he introduced me to Ronnie Bunting, and he was on the run, and he had his hair his hair was dyed ginger. Hey, Joe McCann, no matter what disguise he was in, it would be very hard not to recognize him because he was tall and he was a wee bit hand told as well. You know, you, you couldn't miss him, you know. But we got stopped outside where the market is, you know, down in Belfast City Centre by a British Army patrol. Hey, to me, I thought, well, to be stopped walking along the street with Joe McCann by the British Army would have been a bit like walking down the street 
with uh, you know that guy that the Americans assassinated there a couple of years ago. His name is Osama bin Laden. American. Bin Laden. Now, could you imagine walking down the street with Bin Laden and being stopped by the Americans? Well, well, you would expect. Well, you're going to go to jail as well. <laughs> with this guy, you know. But the British Army, he, Joe produced a fake ID. And I remember the name on it. He had a, an ID, Joe Wood, a, a Queen's University student. And uh, the soldier looked at it, handed it back, and said, that's okay, go ahead. We walked on, and the soldier shouted after us, says, are you sure your name isn't Joe McCann? And I, I was baffled. I said, what's going on here? This is probably the most wanted guy in these islands. That soldier knows who he is. And he's not arresting us. I was baffled. And I, I know now, because the British, even in those early days, they had a list of who was going to jail and who was to be assassinated. And if Joe McCann had gone to jail, you know, he'd still be alive today, just like Nelson Mandela. You know, so they just say, look, he, don't be arresting him, you know, he, because uh, they don't want him to go to jail. People like Bunting, Costello, Miriam Daly, very, very great leaders, very clever, all assassinated. You know, they had a policy of selective assassination. Now, what they did was they probably underestimated a lot of the young people who they threw in the jail who they didn't think was going to be a serious threat because many of them became highly politicized and became leaders when they got out of jail, you know. But uh, certainly McCann was, uh, uh, he was very, very much wanted by the British. He was going to, he was never going to survive us. In fact, that night, even when we went into the Black Bull and was introduced to Ronnie Bunting, you know, it, remember he said to me, he says, you know, Jack, when this is all over, there's some of us will not be around. You, you, you understand that he says we have to just accept that. He says, we could be talking like that, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Sad story, man. Sad story. So you mentioned Bunting, you mentioned Costello. Tell us a wee bit now about uh, the fall of the official IRA and the movements which continued after it. Well, the official IRA in 1972, they, they carried on uh, their military campaign. And uh, in fact, there was even some joint operations between provisionals and officials. And Joe, my wife was starting to take mental health breakdowns, you know, and. Uh, I, I became the, the chair of the Joe McConnell. It was formed these Republican clubs, which were meant to, uh, the whole purpose was to uh, build the political, build a political movement, you know, without leaving guns down, you know, but we're, we're be, simultaneously we're building the political movement, you know, and uh, we, we, we planned to do it through these Republican clubs. And when I got married, we moved, uh, went to live in north, the north of the city and we formed the Joe McCann Republican Club. We well, formed, a, it was the Sean Tracy Republican Club, but then when Joe was shot, we renamed the club after him, you know. And But he always kept me informed about what was going on and on the military side, you know, and he told me about some joint operations that they were on, you know. But the what, what happened was there was a lot of, stresses and strains and tensions going on within the leadership. There was, the thing about the provisional IRA was that their leaders were based up in the north where the military campaign was ongoing. But the leaders of the official movement 
uh, Garland and Golding and people like that. They, they were based in Dublin. And there was rumours, which may or may not have been true, you know, that, that they were watching the war and they were drinking their pints in the pubs in Dublin, you know. And uh, these, these uh, personality things started to uh, become very serious, you know. And we do know now, of course, that the, the British, British agents were very much and uh, very much in, uh, involved in, in all of this, you know. There was even to this day, you know, if I, if I go into a pub now, if somebody starts speaking to me, I, I would just immediately assume that he's a British agent, you know. <laughs> you know, that's the way it was it was then, you know. And uh, there was then uh, there was a split. Another split was on the on the cards, you know, because some people like Joe McCann and Bunting were believing that the uh, the movement was going too much political, you know, at a time when the British had to be stood up to, you know. Joe McCann always said, you know, like you can't you can't have a military campaign forever, you know. The military campaign has to be only a, a strategy, not an end in itself. But at the same time, you know, uh, if you're in a military campaign you have to you have to do it right, you know. And he felt, as others felt, you know, they were they were they were sort of going away from that too early, you know. And uh, then when he was shot, there was rumours, you know, that he, he he was already he had already formed the ANLA, you know. Whether or not Joe was was involved in that, I I don't know. We'll never know the truth about that, you know. The uh, in the Workers Party came, you know, and. Uh, uh, we're not really, we're not regarded by many people as being socialists at all today. You know, they own bars in Belfast city centre, you know, and the, they're, they're not seen as being left wing at all. They're, politically, they're irrelevant. You know, and then out of the INLA, you know, we had the IRSP, Irish Republican Socialist Party, you know, and, and uh, they're, they're not irrelevant, you know, but politically, they don't have any, they, they've got, you know, the, 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 the Sinn Féin, the, the provisional Sinn Féin, became the, the main Republican party now. You know, they, they are the Republican party now today, you know. So I, I don't know whether, you know, there's no doubt that young people who had a political thought in their head, they became politicised in jail, they learned the Irish language, they read James Connolly and, and uh, many, there's no doubt there was a, a shift very much to the left, you know, but uh, I wouldn't exaggerate that shift either. You know, I think, I don't know, that's been stopped a bit, you know, they're now very much parliamentary party, you know, party political, you know. Uh, as I said, I think I said this to you before, you know, you've got, you've got this saying over here, if you want anything done, you don't sit in parliament, you sit on the road, you know, and most of our achievements were on the streets, you know, because then after that, we we sort of uh, realised that what we have to do is we have to, if you're going to if you're going to be political, then you have to fight the British on on all those fronts. You know, protests against orange marches. You know, protests for firm for uh, economic equality. You know, Bernadette McCulloch and me were both founder members of the campaign for economic equality, where we whereby we we, we had a campaign to ask people not to do business with anybody who discriminates against anybody on religious basis or anything like that. 
we campaigned against the Orange Marches, you know, and uh, that's been very successful, sat on the road and got dragged off the road by the police and battened. But the Orange Order today can't, can't march anywhere they want. They can't decide who gets jobs or houses anymore. You know, those are all campaigns, but it's shifted away from the middle of the road in, in the parliament. You know, it's, it's really, it's parliamentary political today, you know. So, Alex, what do you think about uh, the current situation in the north? And did you want to ask Jack about the border poll or something? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to ask. How did you guess? He must have some sort of mind reading ability. I can tell uh, by the body language. The, <laughs> so, so you've just been talking about uh, Sinn Féin's um, parliamentary position, which is obviously uh, very strong at the moment. I mean, they won the largest number of seats uh, the largest percentage of the vote in the recent uh, general election in um, in the Republic. And they're obviously the governing party, um, at least when, when uh, uh, the, the, you know, they're, they're the, one of the leading party in the, uh, in the north of Ireland as well. So the perspective that's being put forward by Sinn Féin uh, for a united a reunification of Ireland is around this border poll, which is uh, specific, uh, specifically referred to in the Good Friday Agreement. Um, do you want to just, well, first of all, spell out what the border, border poll is, Jack? And second of all, tell us whether you think this is uh, going to prove to be a successful strategy uh, to achieve Irish unity. See, the border poll is uh, part of the Good Friday Agreement. The, the Sinn Féin, you know, they got an agreement from the British that there would be a border poll every seven years or something like that. But what they did was, uh, the agreement is that the British Secretary of State has to make that decision. There's one, there's one problem that, that we've had through all of this is uh, Republicans, Republicans like myself, anyway, we, we don't want just the Brits, we, we want a socialist system in Ireland. We, you know, James Connolly himself said, you know, that uh, if you get rid of the British, you know, and paint your, and paint your post boxes green instead of red, the British will still really, you know, through their financial institutions and all of that. You know, and of course, after the Civil War in Ireland, you know, the ideals of James Connolly and, and Tom Clark were thrown into the grave with them, you know, and you had a capitalist confessional state in the, in the 26 counties and, and a sectarian state in the North and all of that. You know. But the, the problem is, and Republicans are, have always struggled with this, do you get rid of the British first and then, have a, and then build socialism? Or... Do you get rid of the British by building socialism in Ireland? You know, and, and the border poll doesn't answer that problem. You know, uh, I personally believe, you know, you know, do, do we wait until do we have to wait until you guys create socialism in Britain, and then we'll get our freedom? We might have to wait for the year three thousand. Who knows? Jesus, I was, I was going to say, uh, uh, Jack, that's a very depressing perspective. That's a bit of a depressing perspective, Jack. Oh no, I, I don't think we'll have to wait that long. I think we're going to have a. I think we're 
we're due a big shift to the left over in Britain. I think I think that's on the cards. Maybe not next year, but you know, Jeremy Corbyn's election was maybe you know it was a it was a it was a leaf in the wind, you know, with what's coming. I think. Oh, I'm very optimistic about that, but I'm not everybody else, you know. Uh, many people believe, look, we'll have to get we'll have to get the Brits. I mean, Jerry Adams himself said, look. You can't build socialism in a British colony. I don't know that I agree with that. I, I, I don't really, I haven't made my own mind up just how relevant a border poll will be. Uh, a border poll will not create a socialist state in Ireland, you know? Well, well just one, one of the things that struck me um, when I was talking to trade unionists in uh, from the north of Ireland a couple of years ago uh, down, in, down in Fermanagh, um, at a couple of events where I was speaking and they were talking about the way that following the Brexit referendum in 2016 the uh, unionist middle class in the, in the north of Ireland have started more and more to identify with the European Union and less and less with the union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And they were, I mean, you know, we're watching this happening in real time, so nobody can say exactly how far it's gone. But there was, at the time, and certainly at the time when in Britain, uh, there were powerful financial and political forces backing the so-called People's Vote campaign for a second referendum, those forces were stimulating those in the north of Ireland, particularly middle-class uh, unionists who wanted to identify with uh, an empire just felt a closer affinity with the European Union than they did with uh, that than they did with Britain and the people who were talking to me were saying you know this this is a, a really important uh, political shift in opinion these people are actually the bedrock of uh, unionism the the middle class not the working class. The working class, the Protestant working class, the unionist working class, um, won't, uh, they'll just be left high and dry like they always have been uh, by, the, by the British state. The British state will move on and they'll abandon them. Uh, but the Protestant uh, unionist middle class are moving away from an identification with the British state, which they held on to very strongly, obviously. Uh, throughout the 20th century and up to the present time. I just wondered if you thought that was a valid perspective or if that's just, uh, if you disagree. Yes, you see, and of course Brexit, Brexit's a game changer for a lot of the unionists, you know, because the, the unionists don't have the control here that, that they once had, you know, that they don't, and their numbers are down as well. Next year, next year there'll be a census and it's estimated that for the first time the nationalists will be in the majority, you know, and uh, you know, and of course they're still the big landowners, you know, and I don't know, I don't know very much about farming, and I'm not an economist either, you know, but I know this that if if the unionist moves his cattle to the other side, the other side of the, the river on the border, you know, he pays he pays forty pound for each cow. And if he's a hundred cattle, then he has to pay four thousand pound. 
and that, that's a game changer. They're going out of business. They're going to go out of business, uh, and that's because they're because they're being British, you know. But but I don't have any illusions at all about the EU. I, I, I'm a socialist, and the EU is a rich man's club. It's a capitalist club. I, I have no illusions about that, you know. And I I I'm fully aware that uh, if you get rid of the British and you're in the EU, well, you're just being managed from one empire to another, really. There's no doubt about that. But the EU will not arm over here to murder people because, they're, because of their religious beliefs. It's my view, you know, that if, as long as you're under British rule, far better to be in the EU, because at least you've got the protection of proper human rights courts and all of that, you know. And, yeah, that's uh, an interesting point. Economic... I can see Jerry Allen's point. You can't really build socialism in a British colony, uh, nor indeed can you build socialism in a colony of the European Central Bank, such as the Irish Republic. But it does at least give a layer of protection against some of the uh, excesses of the British Empire. Uh, Jack, we should talk about looking ahead. We talked about the border poll. Looking ahead, next year, 2021, is the centenary of the founding of the of the Northern Irish state. Uh, what celebrations are planned, if if any? Uh, and what? how do you think you can reasonably sum up the last 100 years of the Unionist state in the north of Ireland? There certainly be no celebrations in the Nationalist Ireland. In fact, it, uh, I would be very surprised if it doesn't go the other way. They'd be using it as a protest against partition. I think there'd be massive protests against partition. You know, the, the whole history has been a, a has been a nightmare for for the nationalist community. I mean, this state is totally abnormal in every way. You know, everything about it is dysfunctional. You know, economically, it's not it's not. Functional economically, you know, and uh, politically, it has always been in crisis. You know, it's a it's a police state. It's still, you know, you have to remember that Britain are permanently at war. Probably the only country in the world who are permanently at war. So we're always in a in a, in a war footing, <laughs> and uh, it's 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 an abnormal situation, you know. And uh, there's certainly, I'm tr- I'm sort of looking forward to see how the unionists are going to uh, ask me to celebrate this, you know, I wonder, okay, I'm listening, tell me, tell me what, what, what I should be celebrating, you know, should I celebrate my uncle being murdered in 1922, his nephew, my cousin, murdered in 1992, because they were Catholic, should I celebrate that, you know, I had to go into the streets to, to get, uh, to get human rights, we still haven't got them, you know, the British government are still denying justice to the, the crimes for the victims of the crimes they committed here in Ireland, you know. I think the, the celebration will actually be, the centenary is actually going to be something I'm looking forward to because it's going to be an opportunity just maybe to tell the world about what's, what's going on, about what the British did in Ireland and the, how they partitioned Ireland and, and, and the outcome of all of that. I'm I'll looking you, forward to I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I... I, I the one group of people who I don't think will be celebrating it will be the British government. Uh, the last thing they want to do is to celebrate uh, the partition of Ireland. It's um, <laughs> I, I, I can only imagine um, I, I, if Boris Johnson bothers to pay a visit 
to Belfast during the centenary year, I'll be bloody amazed. Uh, you know, there, there, there must be their absolute, the, the last thing they want to talk about right now. Um, I, I, it just reminded me of what you were saying of a, a story that a good friend of mine uh, told me who uh, does, uh, he, he does outreach work with uh, former Republican and loyalist prisoners and was taken on a tour of the Shankill Road uh, Museum uh, at the time of the, in, in 2014, on the centenary of the, the First World War exhibition. And they had the uh, exhibition around the centenary of the Somme. And, and they included in the exhibition a letter uh, signed by George V when he came to visit Belfast in 1924, I think, just after the establishment of the uh, uh, of the Northern Irish state. And the letter uh, signed by George V uh, says, uh, there is no one who knows how to die like the men of Ulster. And this, this phrase just s distills into one sentence the utter contempt for uh, the people of Ulster, uh, Protestant and Catholic, Republican and, uh, uh, and Unionist, uh, from the point of view of the, uh, the British state, the head of state uh, of the British, uh, the British state. Uh, and I've, I think they're not going to want to celebrate this. They're not going to want to commemorate it. There's going to be very little coverage on our mass media over here. Um, I'll stand to be corrected if I'm wrong, but I, I just can't see them wanting to talk about it at all. But, you know, increasingly, I think unionists are less ready to deny that contempt that exists, you know. Uh, there's many of them, the writings on the wall, you know, on the safe. Things are changing a lot, you know, I think that, I think within the next two years, we're going to see, if not constitutional change, we're going to see, I think that the tide's going in one direction here. You know? History's not on the side of the DUP. No, no. And on that happy note. <laughs> Jack, a couple of things to talk, uh, more to talk about before we go, uh, including your book. So we must make sure we talk about that before we finish. What's your view on the real IRA, so-called, and the other dissident Republican movements? They got a lot of publicity about six, well, seven months ago. Things seem to have gone when, quiet. What's happening there? Well, when, when you have a compromise, you lose some friends and you gain other friends. That, that, that's the nature of compromise. You know, you don't get everything you want when you want it. And the Good Friday Agreement was a compromise. We had a long and bitter war. And the victims of that war were trapped in it, you know, and, uh, you know, that that compromise was made. But it was based on promises by the British government, you know, but of course there's no British leader in history who's ever honoured any agreement made in Ireland. You know? But nevertheless, many Republicans that I, I know who were active, you know, and said, no, I don't agree, too much was compromised, I'm away, and many people walked away. Not that many, you know. People joined, people say, you know, people joined, I mean, see, you had a lot of changes. 
But I don't know. I, I know I know people who are no longer in Sinn Féin. But I don't know any of them who want to go back to war again. Because it's a war that they couldn't win. We couldn't they couldn't start an IRA campaign again and, and get the support that they got. You know, they wouldn't have a chance of winning. You know, it has to be a political it, it's shifted to a political field now, you know. The media are demonizing they're demonizing uh, Republicans who are not Sinn Fein Republicans. And they're what they're saying is that they're saying that these guys that they want a war they're terrorists. And we've had the emergence of the continuity IRA, the real IRA, and I think there's even derivatives from those, you know. And uh, who they are, I don't know. I mean, I've been a Republican a long time, and I don't know any. We're very suspicious, you know. I, I would say that there's probably maybe some genuine Republicans who, who are in, maybe, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't have, uh, even have marginal political support, you know. But we do suspect that there's some criminal elements in them as well, and, and British agents as well. But maybe it'll all come out uh, in later years. Uh, but certainly, they, they don't have any. They don't have any political. They don't have any expressed political um, uh, objective, and they certainly don't have any mandate. You know, and uh, but you know, we've, we've had the growth. You know, of of all of these disparate groups. You know, but where that'll go it remains to be seen. But there's no doubt that the main, uh, most of the support uh, goes to the, the main Republican Party. And there's no doubt that politics in the North will remain interesting over the next couple of years. So, Jack, before we go, uh, tell us about the book you're writing there, mate. Well, <laughs> it's a, I, I've done a lot of writing in the I love to write, you know, but... Uh, I write controversial articles, letters, and things I got in historical thing, you know. But this is my first attempt at fiction, you know, and uh, it's really a faction. It's uh, my. I took a, a couple from Sarajevo. I, I sent uh, I sent Alex an email earlier on. I told him about this. A girl called uh, Belma Kradovic and her husband Almir, and they did a tour of the falls. The tour that you did. In the falls, and we went and had a drink. And uh, she told me that she's a writing critic, you know, and she's writing a book about a fiction about Ireland, you know. And uh, I've given her some help in that, you know, I suggested names for people and so on, and I give her information that she asked for, you know. And I told her that I was planning to write a bit of a fiction myself, so we help each other, you know. But I've learned an awful lot from her about. But writing fiction, you know, so she's a. Uh, so what I do is that when I write a chapter, I send it over to her, you know, and she reads it and sends her comments. But it's all going very well, you know. She thinks it's improved a lot. The book itself really is. Uh, it's just a. It's just a, a mostly a political narrative, really about about the fortunes of a family who uh, a young couple who uh, come together, come to live in West Belfast in the later part of the 19th century and their whole experience you know from their family and the next generation and the next generation but it's all around the football club you know but the rise of the means of Belfast Celtic you know and uh, it's a, it's a, it's a tearjerker as well as a political narrative but I don't want it to be predominantly one or the other if you know what I mean you know but, but the whole story of Belfast Celtic 
is 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 in the story of this family as well. You know? And uh, so have you bestseller. have you have you got a publisher yet, Jack? No, because uh, I'm going to cross that bridge when I come to it. I haven't. I'm about halfway through it. You know, I've written the first twelve chapters. You know, and uh, uh, it's you know it's called, of course, I'll tell you the name. It's called the Paradise People. <laughs> so. Uh, According to Belma, you know, she thinks it's, it's, she thinks it's a really fantastic, you know, so, you know, uh, that gives me a lot of inspiration, you know. I'm looking forward to seeing some chapters of that, mate, it's going to be good, and I like the idea of uh, the Sarajevo connection as well, because Belfast and Sarajevo do have some parallels over the years in terms of uh, sectarian strike, strife turning murderous. Uh, Alex, any more mm -hmm. comments or queries before we have to go, sir? No, I'm uh, I'm exhausted. Uh, I'm just in awe of uh, meeting you, really, Jack. Uh, you're you're a, a doer, a talker, and a thinker, and a writer, and it's it's just a real pleasure to be able to spend a few hours with you on a Saturday lunchtime uh, talking about your life and uh, the things you love and the things you know about. And uh, just really, thanks very much indeed. Um, and I hope we can meet up again and. I hope one day we'll be able to meet up in real life, as they say, and uh, have a Guinness or whatever your poison is. Um. Well, hopefully we can <laughs> Well, the pleasure's mine, Alex, you know, and uh, it's very nice to meet up with fellow socialists, you know, and uh, uh, let's hope we'll keep in touch, you know, and we'll do this again maybe sometime, you know. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Our absolute pleasure, Jack. Thanks very much for everything you've done over the years for the cause as well. Uh, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you maybe next year at the West Belfast Festival. I'm sure Alex would be up for a little bit of that as well. Well, you know, I was just going to, I'm glad you, you raised that. Why don't you get in touch with them and uh, ask, maybe do something for the festival, maybe give a talk or something as, as part of the program for the festival. That's a good idea. Arthur Scargill came over, was it two years ago? And he, you know, he was, be nice if you did that, wouldn't it? Who came across two years ago? Arthur Scargill. Oh, of course. Fantastic. Well, it'll be well, an honour to follow in the footsteps of Arthur. We'll but it would be that. nice if you took part in it. You know, maybe you had a, you got a slat in it and uh, you, you come over and give a talk. You know, We're always that would very be very... Jack. Yep, yep. Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. I'll look forward to speaking to you all sometime soon. Cheers now. Okay. Thanks very much, Stuart.